Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. It is September 2012, which means we have just um, experienced, the world has just experienced another Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. This, of course, is the uh, ceremony that takes place every year in Harvard, put on by the publication uh, The Annals of Improbable Research, which is a, a fabulous uh, publication. Do check it out. Um, do a web search. They have a great website. And they focus on the ridiculousness, the uh, the unexpected, mm-hmm. and uh, often grotesque and hilarious aspects of legitimate scientific research. So this isn't like fringe stuff where like some guy in a, in a shed and uh, – in, in rural Mississippi is trying to to uh, to uh, create an artificial gravity device or something. We're talking about actual, legitimate, scientific research that uh, often winds its way into strange territory. Yes, it's true. And one of the things that they are trying to accomplish with the ignoble uh, ceremonies, they say, is to make you laugh and then make you think. This is a really important premise of this, and I think that you just highlighted that. Um, as you will note, the name is Ig Nobel, which is sort of a spoof on the Nobel P- uh, Prizes. And each year, the Ig Nobel Prizes honor achievements that do make people laugh and then make them think, and they are awarded to 10 people. And winners do travel from around the world mm-hmm. and on their own dime, by the way, yeah. um, to a gala ceremony at Harvard, where Nobel laureates then present them with their prize. Uh, and the prize itself is made of really cheap material uh, mm-hmm. that's prone to disintegrate. Yeah, it's a, the reason that everyone travels here and everyone everyone's in on the joke. Everyone loves it because, with with a few small exceptions here and there, because it is a celebration of the work. It's not a, a ridiculing of it, and it's not using it to uh, to push some sort of agenda. Well, like we saw with the whole uh, shrimp on a treadmill thing, where uh, individuals that wish to cut the U.S. science budget were using it like, oh, look at this, what people are spending money and using time on, on this uh, experiment where they just put a shrimp on a treadmill, ignoring the fact that that particular experiment was very interested in, in, in how bacteria uh, affects these important food creatures um, in a polluted environment. It was just the catalyst that yeah, they were making yeah, they were fun just of or using. Fun of the catalyst and belittling it and saying yeah. this is stupid science that accomplishes nothing. Ig Nobel's is, an, is the entirely different direction, the positive direction, which is saying here's a study that illuminates something hilarious, but that also illuminates something important about the scientific workings of the universe. Okay, well, let's talk about about who this group is that selects the uh, the uh, nominate or makes the nominations, and then also what the process is. Uh, basically, we have a group of people, and we did we mention Mark Abrahams yet? Uh, no, but he is okay. one of the principals. Here. He is one of the principals. He's the editor and co-founder of the Annals of Improbable Research and the founder and master of ceremonies for the prizes. And he, along with a few other Nobel laureates, science writers, athletes, politicians from time to time too, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they make up the board that nominates uh, the studies and the inventions. So basically they are flooded every year with up to 9,000 submissions. That's a lot. They have yeah. to wade through all of that. They also seek out nominations as well, or nominees, I should say. And Abraham says that he, they will quietly get in touch with them, offer them the prize, and give them the opportunity to quietly decline the honor if they want to. 
And if they say no, he says that's absolutely fine and that's it. He said that they don't mention it and they don't even keep records at that point. Mm -hmm. Because, again, this is something that they want to make sure the person is comfortable with and it really is an honor. Well, the exception that comes to mind, though, was uh, was when the gay bomb. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but I wanted to also uh, give you guys a sense of the ceremony itself. Paper airplanes are launched, Mm -hmm. and then the winners are confined to a 60-second speech. If if they go uh, beyond that sixty seconds, they at, at least uh, to, in this year's awards they had two girls, not one, but two girls, eight year old year olds, come up and say, "Please stop, you're boring me. Please stop, you're boring me." Yeah. Over and over again until the recipient stops. Because you, you got to keep the the, uh, the the point short, and it's uh, it's not about. It's about celebrating the awesomeness of, of any of these given projects, not boring us necessarily right. with all of the hardcore details. I just wish they would do that for the Oscars. Yeah. That would be awesome. Okay, so let's give a, an example of a past recipient. Uh, Dr. Elena Bodnar invented a bra oh, yes. that in an emergency can be quickly converted into a pair of protective face masks. Yeah, so you have one for yourself and one for a friend. Which I think is brilliant. <laughs> of course, you know, again, it's the catalyst for it is that the part that is so very funny, but it actually has practical uh, implications here for us. Yeah, and in that one they had a lot of fun with because I think even the ceremony after that, they were still yeah. having people come on with, with bras. So they the brought the, the bra back yeah. and they it, put it, it on the Nobel Laureate's faces, which yeah. I thought was pretty awesome. Because it also brings to mind the, the old flick, uh, Weird Science. Yeah. You know, where they had the, uh, they were doing the crazy mad science experiment and they wore the bras on their head. Yeah. Yeah, some of the, uh, some of the other winners we've discussed in the past, there was the, um, uh, the, the study that, uh, I believe this was, uh, uh, New Mexico, or no, no, it was, uh, Nevada study, University of Las Vegas, mm-hmm. where they were looking at, uh, at how ovulating strippers received yeah. more tips than normal, stri- than, uh, the, the other strippers, uh, at a strip club. Which, That's been brought into question, by the way. Oh, yeah? yeah? It has. But, yes, I mean, if that doesn't uh, deserve an egg noble, I don't know what does. Yeah. Because the story, like the, the instant picture you get is a bunch of researchers <laughs> spending their time at a yeah. strip club. Uh, though the, the question that they're seeking to answer, all the cheeky stuff aside, is legitimate because you know, we're very interested in human behavior. How does And how does... Uh, how, how do these various uh, animal properties of ourselves influence the, the, the culture that we have built on top of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, of course, the gay bomb. Uh, and this was uh, one where uh, uh, nobody from the U.S. military actually showed up to accept the prize. But it was, uh, and I feel like we've discussed this one in more detail in the past, but the idea was, all right, you got some uh, enemies in the trench over there. I mean, they would now obviously wouldn't be in a trench, but I like the simple uh, version of the of, of it, you know, we're in this trench, they're in that trench. Uh, we want to either kill them or make them not kill us. Both would be great, uh, preferably both, because you know we're soldiers, right? So let's fire something into their trench that makes them uh, love each other in a very biblical fashion. So, in other words, let's distract them from war and, and release think, this chemical yeah. that induces them to then uh, cuddle with each other. Yes. At least. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's, uh, and it was, they did a fabulous bit on 30 Rock where they, uh, lampooned it as well. Um, I mean, and, and this is a fascinating because on one level, it's hilarious. The idea of forcing a, a makeout party on, on your, your enemies. But also, it's, it's very telling. Like the idea that we are, we are these creatures that could potentially be manipulated in this fashion. That, that we ultimately don't have that much control over our, uh, are violent or um, 
passive tendencies. Um, I wanted to point this out uh, in an interview with Ira Flato of Science Friday. Abraham's talked about the worth of this sort of thing mm-hmm. by using an, an example of a shrew. Um, now, these anthropologists, Brian Crandall and Peter Stahl, who, who um, did the study on the shrew, they did not get an Ig Nobel Prize, and they perhaps could um, for this, but right now they were just covered in the annals of improbable research for this. But they were featured because uh, they worked with the shrew, which is, you know, as a reminder, a small, nearly blind animal. Mm-hmm. With an enormous appetite. Yeah. Yes. They boiled it, and then one of them, it was never said in the study, but either Crandall or Stahl actually swallowed it whole. <laughs> okay. Um, and they wanted to make sure that there was, you know, no, no sort of masticating, no chewing going on here. They wanted to deliver it to their gut uh, whole. And then, this is the, it gets even better. For three days, the anthropologist examined the resulting feces to discover how the human digestive system might break the shrew down. Okay, all of that seems absolutely crazy and ridiculous, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but the, the reason they wanted to do this is because they thought there is a gap in the knowledge of how something gets um, digested and the, remain, the resulting remains and, and what is actually there. In other words, if you're an anthropologist or an archaeologist and you stumble upon remains that were digested, you don't know how much of those remains are a result of the process of digestion or the actual like teeth marks in the tearing yeah. apart of a jaw, which would give you a really good idea of how big or small that animal was, right? So uh, what they did discover when they went through all the feces is that a lot of the bones of the shrew, including a lot of the big bones, were missing, and one of the big jaw bones was missing. Four of the teeth, the shrew's teeth, were missing, and a big chunk of its skull was missing just from this digestive process. Wow. So this tells us something now going forward as an anthropologist of what you might be looking at. You're not probably going to make the same assumptions if you know that the the digestive system can play as much of a part as, let's say, the creature's teeth or the human's teeth. Um, so I thought that was a good example to yes. share. Of course, not everybody really gets in on the, the, the humor of the thing. Uh, in 1995, Robert May, who at the time was the British uh, government's chief scientific advisor, uh, he wrote a letter to both Nature, uh, the, the you know the Science Journal, as well as the uh, Annals of Improbable Research, and uh, he took uh, the Ig Nobel Prize organizers to task, and he uh, for quote ridiculing serious work, um, and uh, also arguing that the award should uh, only target anti-science and pseudoscience and leave the real scientists to their labor. So his he was like, well, this is horrible. You're just making fun of these. I don't think it was a particularly informed opinion. I think it was more of like a gut reaction to him hearing about it. That's, that's kind of my take on it. But uh, but here was somebody who did not get the joke, I think. Yeah, and again, Abraham said, we are not ridiculing. We're just right. shining a light on science, and we're doing it in a fun way, in which most people don't necessarily think of science as this fun, you know, lighthearted thing. But here we are talking about things in a way that, um, that again, as he says, makes you laugh and makes you think. Well, it, I can't help but be reminded of a, of a little tidbit from Mary Roach's Packing for Mars, because uh, she was talking about the space program, especially in its early days. You kind of had two groups. You had the scientists who were very much immersed in this world of science and world of scientific research and hardcore facts and trying to, 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 to factor out these various equations to, to do amazing things in space. And then you had the astronauts who were 
he had more of a cowboy mentality. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys were they were former um, experimental jet pilots and all this. So there there was a, a big divide between their outlook on life, and occasionally it would clash. And the the example that Mary Roach brought up was the you know the scientists were trying to figure out how to do long uh, distance space flights, and they mm-hmm. were like, well, uh, let's you know, thinking about ways to make food preserve for a long flight through space. Uh, let's see, there's got a there's probably a really good way that we could uh, make portions of the the spaceship edible and uh, potentially come up with a way to turn the astronauts poop into food and <laughs> and the astronauts got wind of this and they're like no we're, we're not doing that so you had this clash between the uh, the scientific world and mm-hmm. the outside world mm-hmm. and that is where a lot of the humor tends to come from in these experiments because you have you have scientists immersed in their studies uh, within the closed confines of the lab and then they bring out these results that uh, that may not necessarily even seem all that funny to them, but when you expose it to the rest of the world, uh, that's that's where a lot of the humor comes. Yeah, from. when you back up and take some perspective, yeah, uh, I think it's so, interesting. Although some of the scientists know that yes, it's, they're having fun with it, yeah. but um, for for them, it's you know sometimes it's even a thought experiment, which yeah. we've talked about being so um, valuable in trying to have breakthroughs. All right, so there's a little background on what the Ig Nobel Prizes are all about. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into uh, some of uh, 2012's more notable entries. All right, we're back. So 2012, uh, we're not going to get through all of them, and we're, or certainly not in this podcast, but we're going we're gonna to highlight some of the ones that kind of resonated with us and we thought were, were particularly um, amusing. Yeah, uh, one that I thought was great, both of us thought were great, is the 2012 Neuroscience Prize. And this is largely a story about a dead salmon's brain activity (laughs) and about statistical correction methods in fMRI. Okay, so first of all, why is this funny? First of all... (laughs) Dead fish. Dead I mean, fish. Just a, dead fish in and of itself is hilarious. I couldn't help but think of the uh, character Lou Zealand from the Muppets. You remember him? Yes. With the uh, he had the big frilly collar and the mustache and mm-hmm. the crazy eyes, and he was throw fish, boomerang fish as part of his act, uh, or any kind of a skit where someone is slapped with a fish. It's just. It's, it's true. It's, it's instant rev- hilarious. It's it's on par with a rubber chicken. Right, and the idea that you could study dead fish. I mean. It's not. It's not hilarious, actually. I mean, because a dead fish is still. That's. This, uh, it's an animal. It's an. It's an organism. We can perform a necropsy on that species and learn all sorts of things. But there's something just hilarious about the idea of a dead fish being anything other than something rotting on the bank or uh, or laid out on ice at the grocery store. Well, um, and and the salmon comes to us actually kind of by accident, or mm-hmm. rather to the researchers. Craig Bennett, Abigail Baird, Michael Miller, and George Wolford were all looking at, uh, or, or rather preparing themselves for an upcoming experiment or study with humans. Mm-hmm. And they were, I think it was a social stimuli study. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they had to test out their fMRI machine and, and get some baseline operations on it. So at first they used a pumpkin to try to gather some statistical data and do some scanning. Okay. Um, and then they thought, well, that's not, that doesn't quite work out. We can't really see that too well. Then yeah, they, it's not, there's only so much going on inside of a pumpkin. Yeah, exactly. They could see the seeds. But then they said, okay, a Cornish game hen would be great. Did that. Wasn't quite on par with what they needed. Finally, they settled on an, an Atlantic salmon because it had, you know, the sort of definition it needed, it had the guts. Um, it was pretty much ideal. 
So they ran all the uh, usual anatomical scans, and then they ran the experimental set of the study as well. And then they actually showed the salmon images of people in social situations, either socially inclusive situations or socially exclusive situations. And the salmon was asked to respond, saying how it felt. Uh, so, of course, they, they basically just did the baseline of the machine testing, and then they took the data and they stored it away. Well, two years later, uh, one of the authors of the study was running a seminar on how to properly analyze fMRIs. Mm-hmm. And they thought to themselves, you know, what, what sort of data can we use to try to illustrate what we're talking about? And they came on their salmon data. And the reason why they were uh, using or looking for data is because what they wanted to try to illustrate is that information can get so bogged down from these fMRIs. In other words, they create so much data. Um, and they are broken down into sections called voxels. And these voxels can have something like 130,000 pieces of data. And um, and they're looking at this contrast selection, and they're trying to do these comparisons. And doing all the statistics can be a problem because as soon as you have that much data, you can actually produce false positives. All right. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to do something called multiple corrected comparisons. In other words, you correct for all these different uh, points of data before you really run your final fMRI data sets. And they used the salmon. They took these scans and they then ran it against uh, what they call their normal multiple comparisons. And they found that there was actually brain activity, it looked like, in the dead salmon when they ran it across these multiple comparisons. And then they ran it across their multiple corrected comparisons, and they saw no brain activity, right? And that's the correct thing. So all of it seems ridiculous, but the point of it is that uh, fMRIs are widely used, and they're widely cited in media, and they have told us so much about our brain or our mental abilities um, and even certain diseases, but there wasn't really a control or a control that was being widely used. So Bennett says, okay, fine, laugh at the salmon thing, but in the year before our work was released, around uh, something like 40% of fMRI papers didn't use the proper statistical correction methods. And now that they ran their paper and everybody's laughing about the salmon, that number has dropped to 10%. So it's an important aspect of it. It seems Uh like it's kind of minutia. But if all of us are depending on the data that comes out of fMRI, and it is certainly um, a technology that is so widely used, then you would want it to be corrected for to get the best results. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about studies like this is that at once they seem to be both ridiculous and pointless and then also highly important and illuminating about an important topic. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is a perfect example, I think. You know, of course, they were having fun with it as they were asking the dead salmon questions about how they felt about social stimuli. Um, we should also mention the Fluid Dynamics um, Award, which is also pretty, which on the surface is hilarious because the Fluid Dynamics Prize went to the paper Walking with Coffee Why Does It Spill? Uh, This study came from a team of Russian, Canadian, and U.S. scientists who were studying the dynamics of liquid sloshing to learn what happens when a person walks while carrying a cup of coffee, which... uh which, which, uh, this is, of course, on the surface, this is great because the, there's nothing more every day than a cup of coffee, and certainly sloshing coffee. So yeah. the idea that you would study something so seemingly 
low stake as that is hilarious. Well, and I love that these guys, uh, physicists Ruslan Klechnikov and H.C. Meyer, they, they were at a conference. They, they were watching uh, all of their colleagues sloshing their coffee around. Mm-hmm. And they sat down, as we all, you know, most of us wouldn't say, wow, I wonder why coffee, but like really actually, like, what's the physics behind coffee sloshing around? Well, most of us would probably leave it right there. But yeah. these guys were like, let's actually get to the bottom of this, which I thought was fascinating. These are fluid dynamics uh, papers and fluid dynamics publications and, and, and conferences. They're, they're always really amazing. Like there's, you, we try to keep an eye on the various studies that come out, you know, because we're we're looking at Eureka Alert and all those places in, in an attempt to, to keep up with with current science and cover it. And the fluid dynamic papers will come out, and it's always crazy because it'll they'll range from stuff like one paper in particular that really blew my mind. It was dealing with how uh, nuclear fallout moves through an urban city. Yeah. So there's an idea of something potentially very high stakes because you use you analyze how fluids flow. And again, flu- how fluids, be it air, you know, airs, gases, waters, the way they move through an environment is complex. That's why, I mean, it's one of the reasons it's weather prediction is so complicated and, and impossible beyond a certain point. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, so when we get down to the science of how those movements work, it gets really rich and complex. And, uh, and if we're looking at how uh, a fallout spreads through a city, that allows mm-hmm. us to better uh, plan out our means of responding to a disaster. But then on the other hand, these same uh, papers and publications will also analyze things such as this, like how does, how does coffee uh, slosh out of a saucer? And ultimately, they're illuminating, the, they're adding more data to the same equation. How do, these, how do fluids move? Like what are the physics of these uh, of these fluid interactions, right? Because it's a mental exercise, right? Yeah. Because you can apply this to rocketry, like shifting weight that could destabilize a missile or a rocket. So, um, if you're interested, they did come to the conclusion that the sloshing is due to a complex motion of a cup, and uh, also the biomechanics of walking, <laughs> and the low viscosity liquid dynamics. And this is great because all of those things. I mean, it's a pretty much a no-brainer. We pretty much knew all of that already. But there's something hilarious but also really fulfilling about somebody setting out to scientifically answer a question that we already had an answer to. Like, it always, it always kind of blows my mind. It's like it's just something that we um, – like, here's an example of something that we just, we just saw it. We took it on faith. It turned out to be exactly what we thought it would be. And now we have the scientific reasons why. But what if uh, the reasons had been different, you know? Yeah, you never indeed. know until you actually prove it. You know, this is a basically a, a proof of common sense with science. I like that, a proof of common sense. And if you wanted to, or if the industry wanted to, it could change the design of its coffee cups, right? Yeah. Um, all right, so I think that gives a, a good couple of examples. We have some other ones yes. uh, that we will leave for our part two. And uh, just to whet your appetite... They have to do with monkey butts, yes. thwarting long-winded orators, yes. and preventing gastrointestinal explosions. Yes, I, so all of those things are definitely worth tuning into on the next episode. So join us for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like to reach out to us and uh, share something about a, a current or past Dig Nobel winner that you thought was particularly fascinating, uh, you can find us on Tumblr and on Facebook. We are stuffed to blow your mind on both of those. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.